The following podcast is a production of Commercial Connections Magazine, the official publication of the CCIM Institute. For more on the latest trends, best practices, and continuing education in all areas of the industry, visit our website at ccim.com and sign up for our education e-newsletter. Support for Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast comes from Remax Commercial, your access to a world of commercial real estate. Join us to explore the global landscape, empowering entrepreneurs with the freedom to grow and guided by industry experts to help you achieve your investment goals. For more information, visit remaxcommercial.com. Welcome to another episode of Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. I'm Bo Barron, CCIM, Senior Instructor with the CCIM Institute and Managing Director and Owner of Barron Commercial Group. In this episode, I spoke with Kathleen Rose, CCIM, who is the Founder, President, and CEO of Rose & Associates Southeast, Inc. She has combined decades of development and commercial real estate experience to build a boutique, woman-owned consulting practice, which began in 1992 in the Northeast and moved to the Carolinas in 1999. As chief problem solver, she serves as a consultant, facilitator, instructor, developer, investor, speaker, and author for public, private, and institutional clients. She holds the Certified Commercial Investment Member CCIM designation and is a life member of the Commercial Investment Real Estate Institute. After receiving the designation in 1989, she served on the Institute's faculty and in several committee leadership positions. She also holds the coveted Counselor of Real Estate CRE designation and has served as an advisor on several task forces and in leadership positions, including its consulting core and external affairs committees, leading its top 10 issues. She currently serves as a liaison vice chair. All right, Kathleen, let's talk about the top 10 issues affecting real estate. This is a top 10 list. I understand that the counselors of real estate put together every year and have, I understand, for the last 12 years, I think. Can you share with me a little bit about how how do you come up with the list? Hi, Bo. It's great to be with you. So the top 10 issues in commercial real estate, I think, was started around, um, yeah, 11 or 12 years ago. And uh, the process really takes months, if you will. We begin by polling all of our members and getting feedback from them and their companies that they work with to identify about a number of issues that they feel are top 10 issues. And we get approximately 15 or 20 issues that the external affairs and top 10 committee identify and it's a broad spectrum of members uh, in the counselors, like academic, economic, financial, legal, corporate, real estate experts. So it's over a thousand folks that are polled and questioned about it. And we start to take all of that information and then distill it, if you will. And then we can categorize it into general categories and then kind of hone it from there and then put a second survey out to say, okay, of all the responses we got, we're narrowing it down, you know, to these 15 or 20. And then out of the 15 or 20, we have to pick the top 10. Challenge with that is that we start the process in January each year. And of course, we don't report out on the top 10. Uh, we used to do it in the summer. And this year, we debuted it the, for the first time at our fall 
annual conference, which is in September, October. So what's interesting is, you know, we're trying to identify these issues for the coming year in a snapshot of time while we're on a fast moving train. Well, it's interesting that you you said that because I remember, and, and we were actually talking about this before the show, but, you know, this time last year, I had no clue what chat GPT was. Like I'd never even heard of it yet. And of course, AI and how intelligent is it? That's on your top 10 list. Exactly. And it wasn't even on our initial survey in the first go around in January because it hadn't bubbled up yet. And so by the time we got to the end, we said, wait a minute, we'd be remiss if we didn't include this. And and another area is the whole issue of sustainability and ESG, and that keeps ebbing and flowing. So It just depends on how our members prioritize things. And we took it, you know, up to the top, but AI kind of jumped ahead of the the rest of the, some of the items, not as the top issue, but certainly among them, because as you know, markets are changing fast at the speed of light. And so we have to continue to update our data and try to be timely and relevant as we're going through that process. Now, I did have this question as I was looking through the list, through this top 10 list, and I was going through them. Is there a ranking system or is it the top 10, they just made the top 10? And like when I look at number one on the list, is that the one that, that the counselors of real estate decided was the, the top issue? Are they ranked that way? Yeah, actually, it is a bit of a ranking. Um, it's a little nuanced, but for the most part, it really is a ranking depending on how things get prioritized in that ranking. So it's a, again, it's a two-stage process where we do the first poll of data, then we, you know, categorize them and then do the second roll of polling data from the 15 to the you know, 15 or 20 down to the 10. So yes, it is. It does have a, a bit of a scoring system to kind of tell us which ones are floating to the top. So it could be that number 11 was, you know, sustainability and ESG, but it just didn't make the top 10. So yes, it is a bit of a ranking, but we don't add the scores or any detail of that in the actual report. Well, I thought what we would do here is talk about two or three of these, see how much time we have, and then we'll we'll provide more information on how our listeners can go and access the entire list and really dig into to what the counselors have put together for us this year in that top 10. But let's start off with this idea of London Bridge is falling down. And I love how you guys phrased that because we're really talking about the state of the infrastructure in the United States. And so if you would just share with us a little bit about why this made the top 10 list and give us some insights on how you think the state of the infrastructure in the U.S. can affect commercial real estate. Sure. Well, just to to follow up on that, you know, when the top 10 are identified, um, the committee, they do two things. The committee comes together to identify who's the subject matter expert among our cadre at CRE, counselors of real estate. So which counselor do we feel would be best suited as a subject matter expert? So that's kind of why we have individual CREs um, addressing each one of these. So, and then they're they're charged with the committee to come up with a, um, you know, a name that will get some attention. So I agree, London Bridges Falling Down was a great one. Our subject matter expert was Corin Crawford. And, uh, you know, we are an international organization, so we have a European chapter and 
um, and now an Asian chapter. So we've got some folks from around the world. And we, even though it's largely um, American focused or U.S. focused, um, we are trying to interject and make sure we, we're taking an international and a global perspective. Corin uh, kind of dis- described it as a fork in the road, um, finding a third way to advance Americans, America's infrastructure. So, um, you know, as some folks may have read, the American Society of Civil Engineers basically gave the United States a, a grade of C and D um, with an overall grade of C minus in the report card of infrastructure in the United States. And of course, you know, we were inspired by great public works projects of the 1900s. And if you think of the Hoover Dam and all the wonderful infrastructure, we've really let that kind of all lapse. And of course, we got some new um, inspiration with that infrastructure law and the $783 billion Inflation Reduction Act. A lot of that was committed for infrastructure work. The challenge is, and the fork in the road, is that the country is committed to investing in infrastructure, but it seems to be not coming together about how that money should be spent and what should be the focus. Should it be traditional highways, bridges, pipelines, and roads, or other new infrastructure such as you know energy, transportation, the environment? Of course, we see the new push for rail across the country, and we all are familiar with what's going on with the EV conversation, and that's really been interesting given the cold weather we're getting everywhere and the reports of of uh, electric vehicles freezing in the parking lots. But, um, you know, that's the big question is how we're going to focus on infrastructure and how we find that important. Another part of the infrastructure piece that a lot of people don't think about or talk about is broadband and Internet connection. And as we all know, in commercial real estate, if you don't have strong fiber optic and internet connections, it's a little hard to attract uh, industrial investment or tech companies or medical for that matter, because we're so reliant on tech. Back to the point of AI. One question I had about this, because I was looking at you know $1.2 trillion in the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, that $783 billion you referenced in the Inflation Reduction Act allocated for infrastructure. How much of this... In- I think this goes back to what you were talking about, kind of the fork in the road, but how much of it should be used to fix what already exists versus create what we need for the future? Well, that's the great debate. And I don't have specific numbers for that, but I think, you know, a lot of this is working through the states. And I think it depends on what they have going on. I thought it was interesting. We all complain about the roads and the highways, but yet when the was it outside of Philadelphia when the bridge collapsed due to a fire? It was amazing that they fixed and repaired that bridge and replaced it in the matter of, what, a couple of weeks? So we have the ability to do a lot. It's just, I think it's a test of the wills and the process of, of how we can do it. Because in an emergency, we usually pull it together. I remember the first time that a bridge ever impacted my life. And I was home from college. I was in a neighboring town in southern Indiana. I live in in Kentucky. And so the Ohio River separates these two states. And I drove over uh, to Evansville, Indiana. We crossed the bridge. And while I was over there, a barge hit the bridge and they shut it down. I remember we were on our way back. We had to be rerouted and it cost us about an hour. We just went to the next bridge over and, and maybe it cost us about an hour. But I remember thinking, man, 
you know, if, if this bridge wasn't here, like I would, I would likely never go to Evansville, Indiana, if it cost me another hour, like I just wouldn't do it. And if you expand that and you think about, you know, trucking, transportation, all of that, and you start, you know, if some of these bridges fail, it could be, you know, just a massive, massive shock to the supply chain. Well, let's move on to the next one. And I love how this one is phrased as well. Where's my stuff? And this one's talking about the supply chain. Yeah. So, yeah, speaking of supply chain, right? So it's it's not just um, the roads, but um, we all know that the least expensive way to move goods across the world is by ship. And supply chain and logistics and onshoring and this, you know, and, and when we look at kind of the, the mode of when you order something, you know, and it's being shipped or sent from China or Asia or wherever. And, uh, you know, it's getting on a ship. Maybe it's getting on a plane. Um, that's a more expensive route. And then, of course, uh, once it lands here, it lands in a truck. And then that's back to the bridges and the transportation. And as you'll see with this top 10, you know, this is not a, even though we prioritize or have it as a linear list from 10 down to one, the issues are all circular, right? They're all interrelated to with each other in some form or fashion. So, you know, we saw those container ships stacked up outside our coastlines during the pandemic. And and it just, as we said, galvanized the uh, the need to have more resilient infrastructure. You know, in the past or 10 years ago, something like 65% of all goods were flowing through the West Coast ports and 35% to the East Coast and Gulf ports. And now that's flipped the other way. East Coast and Gulf Coast now are, are moving at 70%. Uh, they're getting to 70% of the population. So what we're finding is he calls it the Golden Triangle from the Great Lakes down to Texas to the Mid-Atlantic. And of course, you know, a lot of the rail lines are connected to all of that. So we talk about these inland ports and making the connection from, you know, ship to rail to truck. And and it's it's really been an interesting dialogue. And of course, again, um, why is it shifted? Well, it'll touch on some other conversations that are happening in the top 10, which is that the population has shifted. So you know, we have to get the goods and services to where the people are. And, you know, that's kind of what's happening. But um, really, the the cities that are connected to a port by rail will be the biggest winners because of that connection with the transportation. You know, we were we were talking before and, and you shared with me that you used to be a 102 instructor and, and I'm a 102 instructor now. And during the pandemic, when all those ships were stacked up off of Southern California, there's this app that we pulled up in class called Marine Traffic. And, uh, you know, it's a free app. You can download it. But it allows you to see where every ship is in the world and where it's going. Where's it? And we pulled that up and we looked at how many ships were actually stacked up. And it was, it was overwhelming how many dots were off. It, it's kind of overwhelming when you look at it now just to, to get a scope of how much of these goods are being transported by ship all over the world. And uh, I just remember being like, my eyes were opened to how much is actually, how much product is actually moved that way. And, and with it being to this golden triangle, 
you know, that spurs a tremendous amount of demand. And I'm wondering, because, you know, you're in North Carolina, you're in this golden triangle. How do you think developers or investors of real estate should, like what strategies should they think about just based on how the supply chain is shifting more from the West Coast to the East Coast? The biggest winner in that conversation is the industrial development. So we have um, a lot of distribution warehouse facilities being built along all of our major interstate corridors from Atlanta on I-85, from Atlanta up to Richmond, um, on I-77 from Ohio down to South Carolina and to Charleston. It's really interesting to see how these areas that were really, you know, a good part of the Carolinas in particular are rural in nature except for the urban areas and the MSAs in the cities like Raleigh and Charlotte. And all the places in between really kind of suffered. But we have crisscrossing at least four, five major interstates going north, south, east, west, northeast, southeast that are crisscrossing across there. And now we're seeing communities that are being impacted by large warehouse distribution projects and those developers, as well as some of the mega sites in the auto industry. You know, we've had a few big announcements of automotive facilities, you know, entering the Southeast market because of that. And transportation has a lot to do with it. I wonder how this has affected like values a little bit, uh, especially in these markets where it's like there's all this industrial growth, which tends to mirror where people are because they're serving kind of that idea of last mile logistics. They're serving, they're trying to get as close to the customer as possible, but they also need employment centers. They need a certain amount of people just to employ the people they need. It's almost like it's pulling some of the value out of what's traditionally has been these CBD areas, these downtowns where a lot of the commercial real estate value actually was domiciled there. How have you seen that transition happen in some of these markets? Yeah. Well, I mean, as you know, again, back to the AI conversation and, and automation, that's really changed. You know, a lot of these large warehouse distribution facilities, you know, and Amazon is the one that comes to mind. They're not always employment heavy, right? Because they're trying to automate a lot of these things with some of the cranes and machinery and, and, and whatnot. So we're seeing that some communities, it's kind of interesting, I do a lot of public sector work, and there's some communities who are now um, shying away from trying to attract the warehouse distribution because they've recognized that, as you know, in CI 102, we talk about jobs drive demand for real estate, right? So if it's not a huge job generator, um, but it's a great, great big tax revenue generator, you know, that's something that the communities have to reconcile because there are large facilities that pay a substantial amount of tax and contribute to the local economy, but not in terms of employment to the same degree that, for example, office would. And that's where you have the office and the, the fintech and the tech companies, you know, really dominating. And of course, that whole industry has been challenged, right? Because it went through the roof during the pandemic, the tech industry and the fintech industry, et cetera. But now the tech industry is, we're seeing, getting beaten up a little bit in terms of some of the employment numbers that are coming out there. 
especially in markets like San Francisco, those sectors of the economy are just getting crushed. And it's interesting because you're starting to hear now that some of these AI companies are coming and backfilling a lot of the space that some of these other tech companies have let go over the last couple of years. And I'm real interested to see if, you know, these AI companies will be the demand generators that that they seem to potentially be. And it could could save some cities like San Francisco and some of these others that are just being really hard hit by all the office users of these tech companies just not needing that space anymore. Yeah. And you'll see in the top 10 we talk about, in fact, I uh, was the uh, subject matter uh, expert on the labor shortage issue and that whole shift in the labor shortage. So, of course, you know, as we all know, a lot of people look at job growth and everybody, you know, kind of sits and waits for how many jobs got created or what's the unemployment rate. But we really need to pay attention to what the net is of that and what's the participation rate and how is that being affected? Because, you know, if we have a, a, the great, some of the greatest growth is part of the greatest um, decline right now in terms of job growth. So we have to really look at the net of that when we're looking at those numbers, because one way in is not, you know, it's supply and demand like everything else, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, let's address one more point off the top 10 here, and this is the population shock, this idea that uh, of migration. Tell us a little bit about that, because I'll tell you, I, I've wor- I'm working with some investment groups, and here's some of their criteria. They're generally geographic agnostic. Like, as long as it's a market that's, that's demonstrating job growth and population growth, they'll take a look at it. However, they don't want to look at California. They don't want to look at New York. They don't want to look at Illinois, which speaks to this idea of population migration. So share with us a little bit about that. You know, as I mentioned, this is all interconnected, right? (laughs) So we saw that migration shift accelerate during the pandemic, and that was largely due to whatever the local or state policies were in terms of, you know, free movement, free movement of people. Um, So... That was a big part during the pandemic. Then we started to see that, you know, we started to see that shift from urban centers to rural places. So as you, you know, I don't can't think of anybody who during the pandemic, if you couldn't go to the office and everyone was kind of uncertain about what was happening, you didn't want to be in large gatherings, you weren't going to go to the office building, you weren't going to get on a train or a plane or what have you. So what did a lot of people do? They escaped to the mountains, and in North Carolina anyway, in the Carolinas, people either went in one or two directions, to the mountains or to the beach, where there was, you know, fresh air and (laughs) open space. So, yeah, and that's what happened. Well, you know, again, thanks to, and you'll notice a lot of the, around the time is when the whole AI and technology and, you know, the whole notion of remote work. I mean, think about how now we don't think twice about getting on a Teams or a Zoom call or a, or a go-to meeting and have a meeting, whereas before that was not the norm. So folks had a lot more freedom to move around because of the dynamics of remote work and technology so they could choose where they wanted to live. And I think that fueled a lot of it. The other piece was the cost is, you know, a lot of the moves were from high cost cities and states to lower cost ones. I mean, if we look at that U-Haul growth index and United Van Lines every year and the, the United Van Lines report just came out and you can Google 
U-Haul annual growth index and, and find this report every year. It's really interesting. And they have a map to kind of show the flow. We call it the smile effect. It's, it's like a lot of the country is kind of shifted south to the southeast and over to Texas, et cetera. The two coasts really got battered, California and New York, because they're historically just more high cost. And I think it's a combination between cost of living, policy differences, and that was borne out through how different states handled the pandemic and the freedom of movement. And some like Florida took full advantage of it. So I think it's interesting. I think cities that have, you know, relative affordability, good airports, reasonably affordable housing, and that's all relative, are going to be the winners. Again, it, you know, it used to be for those of us with gray hairs, you you went to live where the job was. And that is totally flipped on its head now. Again, folks will figure out and they can choose where they want to live. And now the discussion is based on really what's the quality of life? You know, is it a place where I can live affordably and it's got great recreation and we can do things? And, you know, they're choosing where to live first and getting the job second because a lot of the jobs are remote. Now, we're starting to see the remote work things shift back a little bit as many employers are starting to require folks show up at the office at least a couple days a week. It'll be interesting. But if you remember a few years ago, I don't remember how many now, but when Amazon was going to do their second headquarters. Remember that? It was all the excitement. Everybody was putting together proposals. And what was interesting for those of us that work in the arena of economic development and site selection, you know, there was always the standard criteria for companies for relocation. What's the cost of labor and capital and what's the talent pool, et cetera, et cetera. But what Amazon did is they added two additional things to their criteria that really shifted the dynamic in economic development world. And that was quality of life and community cultural fit. And that kind of boils down to the real focus in economic development circles now is all about talent attraction. So communities that were focused on, let's build a 300-acre industrial park and create jobs here, they're more focused now on how do we create a quality of life that will attract workers? And if you attract the bees to honey, <laughs> then you know that's where the companies are looking. So that's probably why they're looking at population shifts more than anything right now, because they wanna see where people are moving to. And those are quality of life decisions that are not as driven by the job as they used to be. That's right. And if and if there are these population migrations, and there are, then if you're an investor or a developer in one of these cities or communities that's seeing all this in-migration, you can start to calculate how much more demand is there going to be for retail, industrial, even office, multifamily, uh, single-family housing. You can start to make decisions based on this in-migration because people do create the demand for space. And so it can be really, you know, there's going to be winners and losers when it comes to these cities. But if you're one of the winners, it can be a really exciting time uh, to be a developer and an investor. Absolutely. In our firm, we've developed a scorecard for quality of life uh, index and to help communities figure out where they are in that realm and to quantify it so that they can measure it and start to look at that for that very reason. So we have a 
package that we work with communities to go in and evaluate that very thing. Well, Kathleen, as we as we wrap up, I've got two more questions for you. One is, where can we find more about you? If somebody wants to uh, reach out to you or connect with you in some way, what's the best way to do that? They can get to me at our website, which is roseassociates.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Our company has a company page on LinkedIn, and I'm personally on LinkedIn. So that's the best way to find me or through the CCIM or CRE directories. Well, great. Well, that was my next question. If someone wants to see the top 10 list, learn more about counselors of real estate, where, where would you send them? Absolutely. Um, they should go to CRE.org and learn all about the Counselors of Real Estate. It's a wonderful organization. I always describe it as the brain trust of the commercial real estate industry and where uh, CCIM is the education provider and networking and, and deal making place. I think years ago we came up with the tagline, you know, come for the education, stay for the business. I think I was part of a uh, some of the committees that created some of those slogans way back when. But, um, you know, for CRE, it's really more about a think tank. You know, for me, it's like the Brookings Institution, if you will, of the commercial real estate industry. So it, it, a, a lot of really smart people. And it's really an intimate, even though it's, you know, close to a thousand members or so it's invitation only. Um, it's based on experience and, and qualification. You have to be sponsored and referred in. Um, and you have to have at least, uh, I believe it's 10 years of experience and it's different in that it's, uh, looking for industry leaders who actually are in the consulting business. They're not transactionally oriented. Um, they get their revenue from their expertise. Well, Kathleen, thank you so much for your time. It's been a joy to talk to you and, and learn about the top 10 list and some of the points that we covered uh, we really appreciate your time and your expertise and for coming on here and, and sharing that with, with all of our listeners. So thank you so much. Wow, quite, quite enjoyable. Thanks, Bo. Thanks for listening to the Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast. Head to SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Join us next month for another episode of the Commercial Investment Real Estate Podcast featuring another leading figure in the world of commercial real estate.